Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Indeed, by faith our ancestors received approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was made, by, made from things that are not visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain's. Through this he received approval as righteous, God himself giving approval to his gifts. He died, but through his faith he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken so that he did not experience death, and he was not found because God had taken him. For it was attested before he was taken away that he had pleased God, and without faith it is impossible to please God. For whoever would approach him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah warned by God about events as yet unseen, respected the warning, and built an ark to save his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir to the righteousness that is in accordance with faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called out when called to set out for a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he set out not knowing where he was going. By faith he stayed for a time in the land he had been promised, as in a foreign land, living in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith he received power of procreation, even though he was too old. And Sarah herself was barren, because he considered him faithful to who had promised. Therefore, from one person, and this one as good as dead, descendants were born, as many as the stars of heaven and as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. All of these died in faith without having received the promises, but from a distance they saw and greeted them. They confess that they were strangers and foreigners on the earth. For people who speak in this way make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land that they had left behind, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Indeed, he has prepared a city for them. The word of the Lord. get through it. Um, first things, I just want to start out with some inspirational and sometimes obscure quotes. Uh, Caution is the confidential agent of selfishness. Woodrow Wilson said that. It is by going down into the abyss that we recover the treasures of life. Where you stumble, there your treasures lie. Throw your heart over the fence and the rest will follow. Uh, I just think about that in terms of neighborliness. I just think that's a really beautiful statement. But I want to share something with you guys this morning, uh, something about myself. I am, or was, but still kind of am, on the inside, a collector of things. Um, I had all sorts of collections growing up. It started with the basics, you know, baseball cards, comic books. You put them together, you get comic book cards, which is crazy. Uh, Bits of foreign currency, CDs, I had over 400 CDs, um, books of course, DVDs. Started to branch out, I started collecting medieval weapons, swords and axes, things like that. 
Uh, wooden masks from foreign countries. I had a lot of those, actually. You'd be surprised. Um, there was a time, and it was just something that I did. There was a time when I couldn't go to the mall near my house without going into the used bookstore and getting something. Uh, it was really bad, actually. And I really, I think, you know, for a time, struggled with just being greedy and materialistic and just thinking like, oh, this is my stuff, and I took pleasure in, in just having those things and being that collector person. Um, and I would go back and forth, you know. Sometimes I'm a very black and white person, as my wife can attest. Sometimes I'd be like, just get rid of it all. And then the next day I'd be like, oh, my books, I need them. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> And um, you know, I would just attribute feelings to them. And, uh, we've done a lot of cleansing and getting rid of things, but it's still, you know, it was a mess, and it still kind of is a mess in its own way. Um, and just as a side note, sometimes it worked out in my favor. There was a time when uh, I was getting ready to head overseas to uh, work in the mission field and work with some churches in South Africa, and. I needed to buy a plane ticket. I'd raised some money, but I didn't have enough, and I just sold most of my comic books and bought a plane ticket. Uh, and then... <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, there was another time when I was in seminary when I was actually unemployed for a few months, and I uh, ended up selling a lot of my CDs and DVDs and books online, and I actually paid for like two months of rent with just that income, which was crazy. Uh, maybe that fleshes out just how serious the collecting was. I don't know. <laughs> we recently did uh, a book, a, a program called The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up by Mary Kondo. I don't know if some of you have heard of it. It's a, it's a New York Times bestseller. I highly recommend at least reading it and just kind of getting a feel for it, even if you don't do everything it says to do. Because she basically says, get rid of 85 to 90% of your stuff. Um, and we did get rid of 30 like large garbage bags worth of stuff from our house, um, which if you've been over to our house, it seems kind of stark. So it's hard to imagine like just the place being filled with garbage bags of stuff. But um, there was a reflection from the book that I, you know, I don't want to say stuff is evil. That's not where we're going today. But just a reflection from that book that really I think rings true today with the teachings. Uh, Mary Kondo says in her book, the question of what you want to own is actually the question of how you want to live your life. I think that really rings true for, for what we're reading today, what we're hearing today, what Jesus is telling us today. Um, today's readings are a challenge for us. Uh, Isaiah, Jesus, and Hebrews, you know, they, they challenge us in how we live our lives. Uh, they direct us to consider a God that is not of this material world when we are stuck in the midst of this material world. Uh, they teach us to consider impossible possibilities. Uh, they are about the many ways that God really takes us. And like, like the parable goes, he takes us like clay and he forms us into what he wants us to be. He spreads us out. He makes us fit into shapes and places that we never imagined or thought possible. These scriptures today call to us not in a philosophical or theological or academic way. They teach a compassion and justice in a spirituality of doing 
and undoing things in our lives. Isaiah, Jesus, and this passage from Hebrews, they tell us, like Micah 6, 8, uh, like a trio of teachers to consider this morning to do justice, to love mercy in its simplicity, and to walk in humility by faith. And in Isaiah, Isaiah hands us this bold statement. He says, this is the vision. And then immediately, God is talking and says, I have had enough. Uh, the kingdom of God has broken down and is in the wrong. And he uses very offensive language to kind of paint the rulers and the leaders and also the people of Israel as, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah, which is to say a symbol of corruption and pride. Uh, the goal is to get Israel to move from apathy into awareness and to celebrate as worshipers, not in ritual, but in justice-seeking. Uh, this is a holistic spirituality that's calling out to us, and it translates the love of God into the love of creation. Isaiah teaches a worship that is rooted in grace, and springs forth branches of prophetic action. And the undercurrent of what he's saying, as Jeff alluded to earlier, is that <clears throat> this is kind of a, Israel had adapted kind of a, a typical animistic pagan mentality of the rituals of the temple. They were basically saying, if we do these sacrifices, we get to tell God what he's going to do or not do. Um, this is what people of God have always and always will struggle with, to believe that God is in control. We can't control the supernatural. It's uh, this customary prosperity formula that Israel was following, and God just wants to grab them by the scruff and shake it out of them. Uh, he uses shock and awe in this image that, uh, that Isaiah uses. It's jarring to the people to hear this. This is a slap in the face to wake them up. There is a higher level of obedience and the cry is, you know, to hear. Isaiah says, hear the word, hear me. Uh, because hear was implicit to obey in Hebrew. Um, and God says, you know, if you won't hear me, if you won't follow me, I'm not going to listen to you anymore. I've had enough. The people were trying to get the upper hand on God in a Santa Claus-like scheme uh, through bargaining and sacrifice. And now God is laying out this new deal for them. All is not lost except our sense of control. And while verses 10 through 15 paint kind of a stark picture of how everything has gone wrong and everything is lost. All is not lost. There is hope. There is hope for the scarlet to be made white as snow. And this passage, it's troubling to me to get up here and read and talk about because I think it seems so profoundly and plainly to state what God is about. And I personally am a little dubious when someone gets up and reads a passage from the Bible and says, that's what God is about, uh, because Scripture can be used to justify so many things ill-advisedly. Uh, the Bible has been used to justify 
so many things besides the radical justice that is actually spoken of here. And uh, in these reflections, we just find that God is calling us to what he's already doing. He says, I've already been doing justice in your midst. Um, the authentic worship that he's wanting is a response that reflects on the way that God is concerned for us. He says, be concerned for each other and for the poor the way that I'm concerned for you. And, you know, the people of Israel were the people of the Exodus. That was their, their symbol they always went back to. And that was a symbol of them living in slavery, living in an unjust way, and God coming in and reaping justice and doing justice and delivering them out of it and saying, that's the symbol of who we are and who I am to you. Go and do that. Be that. The power of this image is that God wants to create a people who have received mercy and turn around and do mercy. The call to faith is the call to change directions, to find repentance and dedicate what remains of life to the costliness of redemption. Redemption that is intended for the entire world. And uh, the image of purity and redemption is an image that we can embrace if we accept a rock-bottom sense of our personal needs and our collective community needs. We need God to be leading us in this call to seek justice. Don Miller uh, says, I'm going to quote a little bit later from Don Miller's book, Searching for God Knows What. I highly recommend it, but uh, he says, one of the things he says is that uh, Jesus routinely loses, uh, loses it with and has the least amount of patience for people that say they represent God, but don't do what he says. And as we pivot to the gospel reading, in today's gospel reading, Jesus teaches us a path that will take us far away from, from false worship and lead us into that real faith of, of doing and, and following. And Jesus talks about fear. He says, do not be afraid. The movement from fear to faith into this strategic simplicity that Jesus outlines is, is the point. And he, it's asymmetrical. He's talking about just kind of customary teachings, and then he says, don't be afraid. And normally when they say don't be afraid in the Bible, it's because something terrible is going to happen or uh, an angel is going to appear or because Jesus is walking on the water like a scary ghost in the middle of the night. That's when, you need to, that's when you're terrified and you need to be told not to be afraid. But in this case, Jesus has just taught last week's passage, which was the rich fool. He's teaching about common fear, everyday fear. Fear, fear, anxiety of the moment. Uh, he's trying to disarm that everyday fear of not having enough, fear of missing out, fear of just almost anything that you worry about on a daily basis. And that's a powerful motivator. He, it's going to take some steps for us to disarm that fear motive inside of us. I mean, how many sales pitches and commercials start with, has this ever happened to you? 
And then they outline some sort of like inconvenience or calamity. And then they tell you, this is how to allay that fear by buying this product. And then people go out and buy the product. It's not our deepest dreads that Jesus is concerned about right now. It's the, the ever-present dread, the dread we feel all the time. The unpredictability of life from nuisance to terror. And Jesus' idea of this disarming fear, taking out our fear, brings us into a consideration of giving up security drawing nearer to God's presence. It's easy to romanticize the, you know, give up your possessions, treasures in heaven. Uh, it's very bumper st sticker-esque, I think. Uh, but simplicity remains even when you don't try to romanticize it. You know, poverty's not dazzling and amazing. Riches aren't evil and terrible, and anyone with wealth isn't a bad person. It's easy to take this passage and kind of create a dichotomy or duality, um, but there's nothing to that. Um, going without sucks and is hard. And while it can sometimes be separating and suffocating to have too much stuff, sometimes stuff really comes in handy. And one commentator I really like just summarizes that these teachings on wealth and what Jesus is saying about treasures in heaven, they're mainly about just jarring us out of that fear so we can connect with God and not try to connect with our stuff or our appetites or our egos or anything else. The command to follow and to sacrifice and divest, um, it doesn't compute into any kind of like formula that you could sell for everyday life because it's predicated on God's absolute goodness giving us everything we need and that's what simplicity is is all about that's what Jesus is saying about pursuing simplicity is putting that idea of God's kingdom first Jesus's concern is that God become the center of everything that we do Audrey West puts it this way. She says, the less we want to have, the less we need to have. That fact alone is one of the blessings that God offers. The less we need to have, the less we need to fear. The less we need to fear, the more we know that a life of giving allows us always to live not on the brink of destruction, but on the brink of blessing, where we can more readily hear the promise that the Son of Man is coming at an unexpected hour, Desiring not to punish, but to bless. And being ready doesn't mean being worried. Being ready means being expectant, being hopeful, being energized by the fact that God's a God that blesses and loves and secures us when things don't feel secure at all. Today's challenge of, a, of the gospel is to put our steps in line with our hearts. Uh, the songs that we sing today... Uh, which were beautiful and powerful. Uh, we need to walk through those lyrics on a daily basis. Uh, another commentator notes that uh, this is not the prosperity gospel. This is 
You know, it's not give big, seek justice, and you'll get that promotion at work. Uh, this is the identity gospel. God has called us to be one thing and said that we no longer have to be that old, other, terrible thing. Live into what God has called you to be, which is changed to make a difference. This living in is the journey of faith. And faith, so much more than intellectual assent to beliefs, is well-defined in our final passage, which is Hebrews 11. Uh, trust. It's an applicational reading of how we can move forward. Uh, and the Bible has a lot of sort of razzle-dazzle underdog stories. Uh, Joseph this is probably my favorite one where he you know, goes into the prison and then comes out. Daniel's another one where every step of the way he's just pushed down and punched down and before you know it he's in charge of everything. And it's just you know, amazing and I'm sure that yeah, every one of us is on the same path, right? <laughs> uh, even if we know that you know, love wins and that God is supreme, it doesn't mean that we get to feel like we win every single day. Uh, and the people of Hebrews... In the book of Hebrews that Paul is writing to are being oppressed, and so they find hope in this idea of faith. The God, the God of the Bible is not a pandering God. He is not a Santa Claus God. He will not cow to our faithfulness or act as though he owes us. There's not a formula for us to follow where plucky underdogs of faith overcome the world visibly and altruistically. Uh, that would be awesome, but that's just not the case. Again, in Searching for God Knows What, Don Miller has this elaborate story where he goes to a conference on how to write a self-help book. And he's talking about self-help and how it's all about basically, you know, putting together easy steps in a ways to overcome personal ills and follow snappy formulas. And the key he learns is to Look for a misery hiding behind the surface of life, a misery that people will not feel until they are told that it is there. Then, step two, identify the joy that is felt when the misery is overcome by taking these three easy steps. And step three, those three easy steps can be taken by anyone with $15 to buy the book. <laughs> and he then laments that the biblical search for truth, the way of faith, there is no such formula. And uh, I want to read a little section from this because I just thought it was beautiful. He's looking at the Bible and saying, what are the formulas that the Bible seems to espouse? He says, there's this guy named Stephen who was miserable, or at least I assume he was miserable before he became a Christian. And then he was stoned to death. <laughs> this, this formula is not good and it's not going to make the cut. How about Peter? Peter was rescued from a successful fishing business only to be crucified, some say upside down, and possibly alongside his wife. That's not going to work either. <laughs> and then, oh, I thought there was three. Oh. The pitch of Hebrews sounds like a self-help book. But the only step is to put your trust in God wholeheartedly. The joy we inherit is what God is that God has a better plan than our own, not a plan that we can attain by putting that trust in God. Uh, you know, we don't get to 
put our trust in God and then say, okay, God, here's the happiness plan. Let's go. God led Abraham out of all that he knew to live as a stranger in a strange land, separated from all that he had learned and hoped for as a young man. Abraham lived a hard life, and yet his faith brought him through, and he experienced the joy of the Lord. And we are reminded that as comfortable and as free as we are in our culture, in our setting, uh, we side with these Christians of old. We have a shared faith experience with them, a following. We are pilgrims on this journey of faith, yearning for the fulfillment not of our own kingdom, not of the world's kingdom or any political kingdom, but of God's kingdom. The justice of Isaiah, the simplicity of Jesus, the eminent presence of God Almighty, our only Savior and Lord. And these passages point us towards one thing that I can conclude with, and that is hope. And hope is really hard to keep. Uh, People have had some not-so-nice things to say about hope. Voltaire called it the mania of maintaining that everything is right when it is wrong. Uh, G.K. Chesterton called it the, the temptation to see too much in everything. And of course, my, one of my favorite quotes is in The Matrix, the architect says, hope is the quintessential human delusion. Hope does not need, biblical hope does not need circumstances to change but rather changes us in the midst of circumstances. It is far beyond optimism, far, far beyond wishful thinking. Christian hope has the power to unlock an unnamed future for those whose present is a dead end, a locked door, a seemingly insurmountable tragedy. Our formula is not that everything will work out all right for us, but that no matter what, God himself, who calls us to hope, will not disappoint because he will give us all things. The kingdom is ours already. Hope drives us to love and serve the least of these in pursuit of that kingdom. A final thought uh, from a physician named Rachel Raymond. She writes, wounding and healing are not opposites. They are part of the same thing. It is our wounds that enable us to be compassionate with the wounds of others. It is our limitations that make us kind to the limitations of others. It is our loneliness that helps us find other people or to even know they are alone. It is our need that reveals our blessing and allows us to seek justice, simplicity, faith, and above all, hope. Last things. Security is mostly a superstition. It does not exist in nature, nor do the children of men as a whole experience it. Avoiding danger is no safer in the long run than outright exposure. Life is either a daring adventure or nothing. Helen Keller. And as that applies to us, the church is the church only when it exists for others. We want to pivot to a time of talkback, and I want to invite the band up to play a little interlude. Uh, just so that we have some time to think. I know some people are ready to snap back and have an answer, but some people need a little moment to kind of process things, so we're going to put some questions up here. I'm going to read them out loud in case you can't read that. Uh, and then we'll take two to four minutes, <laughs> and then we'll come back and we'll uh, start a dialogue. Uh, so question one, are we on a quest for justice? 
And has it yet led us down a path of insecurity and uncertainty? How can we connect in relevant and real ways with one another and the community around us, the world, and the journey of faith? Can we believe the words of our Lord? Can we let his love and promises take away our fears? Can he free us to live with courage and conviction, hope and trust? What contemporary opportunities do we have to store up treasures in heaven rather than on earth? Think about your story, your victories and struggles. Now think about those around you, those at work in your neighborhood, or anyone you may encounter during the week. Is there someone who could benefit from hearing your story? Is God calling you to offer your experiences of God's faithfulness to encourage another in their journey?